you, Joseph, took the desecrated body, wrapped it in clean cloth, and laid it in a tomb. You rolled the heavy stone, dutifully securing the entrance. Know where you stand, no more. Know where you stand and stand there. Know where you stand, no more. Know where you stand and stand there. Know where you stand. Welcome to Know Where We Stand podcast, our Lenten conversation about justice, identity, faith, and the lay Catholic consciousness. My name is Teresa. And my name is Jimmy. And on this episode, we are exploring the theme of brother. Uh, When we look at the Stations of the Cross, we see Joseph of Arimathea taking down the body of Jesus and caring for it as a brother of Jesus. And really out of that um, theme is is what we're going to do for our episode today. Uh, So we have a great interview with the peace poets, uh, Lou and Emmanuel. I get to talk about a bunch of different things. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, afterwards, we have a phone call with my two younger brothers, Joe and T. Mm. Super excited to have uh, share that with you all. Um, our Sunday school lesson today, we'll be exploring race and the Catholic Church. And as always, we'll close out with Teresa's examine for some spiritual practice for you all. So, as we always do, how about them readings, Teresa? In the first reading, we see um, the prophet Jeremiah writing and saying that the um, that the Lord is saying that the, the the days are coming and that God is going to make a new covenant because the old ways weren't working. Yeah, the urgency to it, I think, is is important. And yeah, as always in, in these times, I think there's a lot of things that urgently need to be renewed and and what is that first step we need to take to towards that renewal Mm -hmm. yeah i so a lot of the psalms resonate with me and uh i don't think i've mentioned this yet but we had a a couple dominicans a priest and a nun give us a workshop on preaching they give workshops uh to lay folks on uh formal training on preaching and one thing that they really unearthed to me was talking about the Psalms as ancient Jewish poetry. Mm, mm -hmm. And that just really opened it up because I'd really get caught up with the words sometimes and they're not supposed to be taken like super literally. It's really like a lamenting, a like a guttural, like get it, get it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Create a clean heart in me. Oh God, a clean heart create for me and a steadfast spirit renew with me. Like that longing and that expression I think is so important. And I know when I keep that stuff bottled up, it's, it's not helpful. It needs to, it needs to come out, you know? Yeah. And I think that's such a great reminder that there's so many different genres of writing within the Bible. Yes. So we um, go to scripture, we crack it open. And then I feel like my tendency is just to read it as if it were like any book I'd pick up at the strand, you know? Yeah. Like a Love the Strand. Such a great bookstore. <laughs> um but yeah, like a like almost like a creative nonfiction. <laughs> um but yeah, the Psalms and how they're like how they're poetry and what 
power poetry has um, really to tap in to the, to that emotion. You know, you said lament, like that is such a strong image um, and a strong emotion that we all um, experience. Like it's part of the human experience to lament, to um, be sorrowful, to suffer, um, to cry out. Yes, yes. And that it captures that, that that is sacred reading, that sacred scripture, um, this poetry, this emotion, this suffering, um, it's in there. And I feel like a lot of times, especially as a woman, I'm told to maybe like quiet my voice or Mm -hmm. don't say certain things or like speak in a certain way when it's like right there in our sacred text that like be mad. Yeah. Be sad. Exactly. Speak out. There's a lot of injustice and a lot of suffering. And that is the root of our faith. That is the, like the root of our salvation history. You know, if there wasn't any suffering, there would no need be, there would be no need to be saved. Right. I think you nailed it right there. When for me, what speaks to me about the Psalms is that freedom, right. To Mm -hmm. like, there, you know, there's some crazy stuff that, the Psalms say about God (laughs) and there's a wide range of that. And I think being empowered to speak to God or to lament with freedom and not Mm -hmm. regulating emotions based on gender standards or other societal standards and, you know, whether, yeah, I think that the, the freedom for how you're feeling and also knowing that our God is like big enough to hear it all, you know, like, yeah, I feel like sometimes I feel I need to hold such high respect for God that I don't ever want to express doubt or, Mm -hmm. and you know, Jesus on the cross even cried out like, God, why have you forsaken me? And I think we like to distance ourselves from suffering that it's like, Oh, it's, um, like, Oh, you're suffering right now. You must've done something to deserve that. Or, Oh, you're getting arrested. Like you definitely did something to deserve that. Mm. Or you're spending time in jail. Um, you're definitely guilty. And it's like, well, the fact is, um, there are X number of people. And I'm sorry that I don't have the fact who are sitting in jails for, um, for days, for weeks, for years, without a trial yes. in our justice system says that you are innocent until proven guilty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, disproportionately men of color, um, people of color, especially men of color are guilty until proven innocent mm-hmm. and have to go to such lengths um, to, to prove that they're innocent. Yes. And I, and that, and I can see kind of like going back to the, the Job narrative that's like, well, he did something wrong. Uh-huh. Or like, he shouldn't have been carrying that plastic gun. Yeah. Oh. How are you going to tell a kid he can't carry a toy around? Uh, yeah, and just to add to that, our producer, Sean, gave us a stat. In the U.S., there are currently 443,000 people in jail awaiting a trial, just waiting for a trial according to the Prison Policy Initiative. But I got to say, the way that this gospel ends feels pretty relevant to today. Jesus answered and said, 
This voice did not come for my sake, but for yours. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. There it is. And now we're going to transition into our interview with the peace poets Lou and Emmanuel. Hope you enjoy. We're going to build a nation that don't torture no one. But it's going to take courage for that change to come. And we're going to build a nation that don't torture no one, that don't torture no one. But it's going to take courage, going to take our courage for that change to come, for that change to come. And we are going to build a nation that don't torture no one. But it's going to take courage. It's going to take our courage. Going to take your courage for that change to come. And welcome back to Know Where We Stand podcast. Uh, for our interview today, we have two uh, guests we're really excited to have on, uh, Emmanuel and Lou from the Peace Poets. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, yeah Peace family. Uh, it's also a blessing to be here. Awesome. So we want to cover a bunch of different things today, um, but just to start out, you know, both of you and, and the Peace Poets do so much different work. And I was wondering how uh, you guys describe your work. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's something that we've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, and not just recently, as, as we continue to walk this path uh, of artistry. And I think what Lou also calls, a, we're like a mix of a hip-hop crew and a humanitarian initiative. <laughs> And um, I think what we mean and what he means when he says that uh, is is focusing on the healing um, that is the point of art. Uh, it's the reason why we cry when we listen to certain songs or mm -hmm. see certain uh, films or images because something in us is celebrating, something in us is healing. Mm -hmm. um, and... I think we, you know, lose touch with that along the way. But uh, as people who are connected to communities who are on front lines of social justice struggles, um, families who have lost loved ones to police murder or who have loved ones who are incarcerated, you see how um, people telling their stories and creating art from what they've actually lived is powerful and it is political even though sometimes mm -hmm. we may not see those direct connections um, so we've been really thinking about how how to keep the healing aspect uh, in the forefront of our 
of our work um, because it is that that uh, that's going to give our art real purpose in any space that we bring it uh, in any form, um, whether it's in a poetry circle, whether it's on a on a stage, uh, or whether it's in the streets um, protesting and using our our art to give chants um, to to voices in the movement. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate uh, you mentioning healing and creating those um, healing spaces. And I mean, just from you know knowing you guys and being friends with you, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the five of you as men creating healing spaces. And I'm wondering what role brotherhood plays in your group. And uh, I guess as as men in this work, where you see some challenges maybe from the exterior interior um, coming up yeah we talk a lot about the violence of masculinity right there's a there's the definitions that are put upon manhood in our society a lot of them are inherently violent in the sense that they keep us from being loving and keep us from being open so essentially we're actually not being our full selves mm-hmm. and and so if you got so there you go right there. If you're not able to be your full self, you're not able to love and say that you need love and express that you need love to be gentle, to be kind, to connect to other people. Then you're broken, right? Then we are broken because we and I could say that and mean it, right? As a, someone who was raised in a society and uh, you know male body person, and you know, I, I believe that that I've been broken, that I've been hurt deeply by the idea of what it is to be a man mm-hmm. by the idea of what it is to be a man yeah right? and then because of how powerful the idea is how has that affected every single day in which i've walked out into the streets and looked at people and felt either connected or disconnected so much more often maybe threatened maybe like i had to defend myself maybe like my first priority was to express a certain amount of machismo or uh, Mm -hmm. toughness out of necessity because of the ways in which manhood exists. And so, of course we need healing, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) If we are broken, if we are shattered, if we are incomplete and not even, the the problem is most of the time we don't even know we need to go to the doctor Mm -hmm. from this type of illness, from this ailment. We don't know that we need healing as men because we're not taught that either, right? That's like the same way in which... We, we, they make sure that white people don't know the history of of white people right, raising raise, rising up and also against uh, white supremacy. The same way that white supremacy enshrines uh, this idea of complicity, it's true also of manhood. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that we don't even know to seek healing, mm-hmm. and that we don't know to address this this story about what manhood is. And, and so, yeah, we create spaces of healing, and I'm sure that both of, yeah, both of us could, could speak to that a lot. And we've actually, uh, uh, E has done a lot of work specifically with young men, so I could let him speak to that because he has so much experience with it. And as a group, as the Peace Poets, I would just say that a lot of us have facilitated groups of explicitly young men and had amazing experiences by just being like, cool, let's have these conversations that were never had, right? The ones that happen kind of either, the the ones that that are rebelling against these ideas. And it's like, kind of like, guess what, y'all? We know you have feelings. (laughs) (laughs) You know? It's okay. Yeah, it's okay to feel, it's okay to be scared. Uh, 
and 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 you it's okay to to have questions and to not know uh, and it's also okay to uh, love each other right so that's what i mean there's many rebellions that we have against the ideas of masculinity and all of them definitely are in the context of uh, of trying to heal from the immense pain that our ideas of manhood cause there's like so much knowledge um, and like things to kind of like pick at from what you're saying. Um, but as a woman and being on the receiving end of that, that violence and um, like you were saying, like that need to heal that men have, um, I was just thinking about how the role of the woman is to like go above and beyond. And then take that step further and then, like, provide for or, like, take care of, like, the men or, like, be the healers. Um, and it's like, no, you guys you guys are capable of healing yourselves. And, in fact, you need to do that. But, yeah, I was just kind of thinking about, um, E, what you were saying, kind of that, like, the person is political, even if, like, they're trying to run away from it or, like, they don't really want to be just, like, um, and, Lou, I think you said it, right, we live with ideas that are so powerful that they're like placed upon us. But yeah, just like we like don't have space for encounter. And it sounds like that's really like what you're trying to bring is like, and create these spaces to just encounter one another. Um, and I think like the deep work of healing starts there. Just being like, I see you like, yeah, it's okay to cry. There's no question at the end of this statement. This is, was just a reflection <laughs> on what you said. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to um, vibe off that um, about healers. Um, just to note how upside down um, we currently are. We're living in such a hyper-political world that it's it's hard to be aware of how political every single thing is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in when we live in in such a in such a context, it becomes. Uh, our responsibility as healers to do that investigative work and become aware of the many layers of oppression that we're maintained by. And Mm -hmm. so I think that this journey has allowed me to see, you know, that I'm living on Lenape land, Mm -hmm. you know, that my country is at war, that my money is going to finance uh, people being killed, people being tortured, people Mm -hmm. being bombed. Uh, and so I say that because we need the same way that we're investing trillions of dollars in war. We need that investment, not of money, because money is just right the, the thing that we've attached to the idea of value. Mm-hmm. But we need the, the value of humanity to be in the artist, in artistry and creation. Mm-hmm. And because the, we're, we are the truth tellers. Uh, artists are the truth tellers. Uh, whether you create a dance, whether you create a painting, uh, and you show the truth to the world of what is really going on uh, in your life and what you've experienced. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to, to speak to that because uh, we also had an amazing workshop yesterday, uh, and uh, a great artist named Holiday said in our writing session, uh, I heal people because healed people heal people. Hmm. Um, and I think about that energy and the, of that idea uh, and how it's so vital 
to us getting to a place where we can finally uh, see each other um, fully and see how our lives are interconnected and know how we have to move from there on uh, through the you know the wisdom of of all the artists who've come before and mm-hmm. will come after because there's some really amazing young people saying what the world needs to hear as well, especially in prison. Yeah. Um, so in the state of mass incarceration and segregation too, what, uh, what do you think is the call for us as people of faith to encounter um, our, our fellow people who are behind bars? And how do you think we could, could break down some of those barriers? Yeah, I come back actually to to art right away because one of the things that we've been able to do is work with young people who are incarcerated. And it's so immediately evident how profoundly inhumane the system itself is. And I mean the logistics of the system. I mean what it is to go inside, uh, have your clothes taken from you, have not be able to open doors or you know, not be able to make the smallest decisions that express your your desires, your humanity, your instincts, right? And it's almost as if you get taken away. If your humanity was a place, you've been taken far from it. Uh, and then there's, you just keep going with every single element to it, with the food that you're eating, with the way people talk to you, with the way that you have to be, de- you're dehumanized by having to protect yourself. I mean, every single step of the way, you're brought farther from your humanity. There's farther, f- and yet uh, you can, where you are, and where I've seen young people, you know, and other people who are, have been locked up uh, from that distant place, uh, you can still touch and feel your humanity because it's within you, right? And so no matter how far they've tried to take you, uh, you, can, you can still feel it. And, and it's as if it's on a hill and you can see it, right, in the distance, uh, but it's not always easy to get back there. And what I've seen is that art is one of the most effective ways to return, right? To actually say, to make present our humanity in a space of that is inherently inhumane. And, and I've heard people tell their stories about who they love and the people, and about their moms who they miss, right? And, and the people who have guided them through the hardest moments in their life, the people who they want to see when they get out, and also just their, their ideas. One yeah. of the people who is an amazing yeah. artist I teach with, her, she, she says, you know, what do y'all have? Why are you artists? Because you have ideas, and that is and that is something from from those ideas that are unique that come your expression of your truth right and and when that happens right and i know that you all have experienced all of us have experienced it right? what happens is we see and feel those sparks of humanity right and those sparks are happening both uh in inside every prison every single day because that's the nature of the of the human spirit and as people of faith I think that what we need to do is be able to constantly recognize those sparks, right? Yeah. The sparks of humanity that are behind bars, those that are actually out here too. Yeah. Um, so I know you guys have done some work on uh, the shutting down Rikers campaign. Um, and we know Mary de Blasio has announced a plan to shut down Rikers. Could you share just a little bit about um, your work on the campaign and what needs to be done now to ensure that Rikers isn't replicated somewhere else. Yeah, if I could just say quickly, so a lot of the work that we do uh, in the last five years or so 
is connected to organizations who are doing amazing work. So they, a lot of times, will call us or contact us and say, we would love your support on this campaign or on this issue. So not just organizations, but just folks. You know, sometimes it's people organizing their building, you know, in the, in the Bronx. Sometimes it's uh, it's families who've lost loved ones to police murder. And we've, we've tried to respond to the call, whether it's to an organization or to an individual as best we can. And, and so we were called upon by the Close Rikers campaign to accompany them in that way. So when we talk about the work that we're doing, the first, I feel, first I got to say that every day there's a lot of people who wake up uh, first thing in the morning and spend like most, almost every hour of their day to shut down Rikers Island. Uh, and while we support them and we love them and we respect them immensely, those are not, those people are not us. So when I talk about the work we're doing to close Rikers, I want to be clear that the work that we're doing is having offered uh, music, right? So we wrote uh, some songs for that campaign. We went to the streets for their big march that they had uh, last year to the, went through Queens to the, to the bridge of, uh, that goes to Rikers Island and performed there. So we offered our songs and our poems to this movement as well as, folks who have, uh, and we've done it in kind of unique spaces. So not just in the streets at a protest, maybe in a, a typical what we think about as an activist thing, but also going to the hearings that they had uh, that, that pro- to protest solitary confinement in Rikers Island. We know the trauma and the, the harm that has happened specifically for those who are in solitary. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add... Uh, just in terms of culturally what we can do um is really to to challenge to challenge uh white supremacy patriarchy and capitalism's narrative of um people behind bars and people in general you know anybody <laughs> whatever whatever story they got reject it um <laughs> but in this in this particular uh context um, I think we really have to develop our own philosophy of humanity uh, and know and reframe what what is prison, you know, and who who is a prisoner and what is a political prisoner. Yeah. Uh, and I think those are the kinds of questions that lead us t- to a, a deeper humanity um, because I think a lot of the conversation around um, criminal justice is still really surface level uh, in terms of where we should be and how we should be relating to our our fellow humans. Um, it's very uh, the system is destroying lives, and it's n- n- not only the lives of the people inside of it, but entire communities are in prison uh, because when one person is in prison, when your loved one is in prison, that family is in prison and so uh i i really want to challenge us to um stand up for for our for what we know to be true yeah thank you for sharing that so we've been asking all of our guests this but just in the state uh of our society in new york city um what what brings you hope all right so thanks jimmy what brings me hope yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I, I really believe in abundance. And I believe that we're taught not to see it. So what I said before is we rebel against all kinds of ideas. And, and one of the important ones is that 
the important things that folks are taught to focus on focus on is that we need things. We need things to be happy. We need things to be beautiful. We need things to be successful, right? And so we wake up every day and we get on our grind to get our things that are supposed to get us what we are supposed to want. And yet, when we look away from that, right, when we duck that narrative and all of a sudden, like, gaze upon the ocean of life that is right before us, we're just surrounded by gods. We're surrounded by miracles. We're surrounded by things that are so wildly amazing that hope is not even like, that's like an afterthought. I'm too busy being in love with life to even be like, oh, like, where do I find hope? What? You know what I'm saying? I look at any human being and the way that their body works and their eyes look and that the fact that they're breathing and they can you know, just connect to something else, to someone else, to express a feeling. All of those things are so miraculous to me that, yeah, that I'm, in, I'm in love with life. You know? And one of my personally favorite expressions of life uh, is human beings. And when uh, I get to spend time with people and see people being people and walk through these streets and watch somebody kind of just walking their way into into their day or, or bobbing their head with their headphones on or, you know, just smiling and saying, have a good day or not. Maybe something that's not beautiful. Maybe something that's just real and hard. Maybe somebody tired and I hear and let out a tired sigh on the train. You know, and I was like, that makes me in love, too, because I know I'm also human. and I know what that is. And so that fact that that we're experiencing something that is so, like as Teresa, as you said, right, this chaos, that we're surrounded by chaos, that we are in the chaos. Uh, and because we're experiencing that together, I really believe that if we have eyes to see, you know, no matter how bad the chaos is, no matter how intense the war being waged upon our humanity, no matter how lost we feel some days, that there, we are still surrounded by an abundance of beauty and creativity and possibility and absolutely uh, by hope. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I think what has been, um, what stood out recently is we've been rehearsing and we performed yesterday with a percussionist, um, a brother named Dr. Drum. Um, and he's been just like giving us, dropping just gems uh, casually on us. <laughs> yeah, casual gems. Um, and he was just telling us uh, during rehearsal, you know, um, kind of just you know, get, advising us because he's, he's been in the game for 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 some time and he's just experienced and so uh just telling us like to trust um to trust that feeling inside um and to let go of the fear and the worries uh and he he captured it in such a simple but beautiful and powerful way you know if it's good is real um yeah my life is giving me hope uh, Dr. Drum's positive vibrations is giving me hope. Um, and being here, uh, of all places, you know, in in the, the island that I was born, um, in, in such a, a perilous time, 
politically, uh, and we're like surrounded by wealth in this area that we're we're at. Um, and however, you know, Benincasa is a sanctuary and a community, and we're um, here meeting with the intentions of seeing and sharing the goodness of each other, uh, and that because it, th- this is one moment we're capturing this in a recording, but I know that it's a living practice here. So uh, coming here gives me hope. Um, being here gives me hope. Um, yeah, being with being in goodness with good family. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both so much for being with us, for taking your time to be with us and for the depth of that sharing and um, thinking about Lent, uh, you know, as a time of kind of accounting and reflecting, but it's holding the hope for resurrection. And I really feel like a lot of this interview reminded me of that hope that is always around us um, if we keep our eyes open to it. Um, but thank you both. Super grateful for your presence with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you to y'all. Much love and respect. Thank y'all for this conversation and for the good work that you're doing in your lives. Appreciate you. Yeah. Word up. Thank you so much for all that y'all do and keep putting that, the message out there. Um, I'm so grateful to be part of this. Ashe. We ain't gonna right. stop. So a peace, poets. Emmanuel and Lou. <laughs> We can't be silent, our love is not a riot. We've come to bring the justice that we've always deserved. The liberation of all black women leading the call. The change we making is about to be born. And I still hear my brother crying, I can't breathe. So now I'm in this struggle singing, I can't leave. Five, four, three, two. How are we doing, boys? What's going on? Doing well. Good. But yeah, you know, this, uh, the topic of this podcast we're doing is brotherhood. And um, yeah, I guess I was just reflecting on our brotherhood a little bit and wanted to hear what you guys, like what brotherhood means to you. Um, but I guess just, yeah, I was thinking about it and siblings are just such this unique thing. Um, and especially being brothers, the three of us. And, uh, I guess for me, just one thing I really appreciate about both of you and having you as siblings is, uh, there's just a, I think a level that we relate on to the world that like, no one else can really understand of course because we grew up in the same house and um and whatnot but yeah I just feel like when we're together whether it's like inside jokes about you know friends we had years ago or just you know making jokes about mom and dad when they get on our nerves it's uh yeah it's just a presence I really appreciate and wondering if you guys had any thoughts on what it means to you uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I agree with all those things you just said. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain, honestly. Um, one thing I think about is kind of our ability to go now that especially we're kind of in all different, um, areas in our life and different places. 
you know, we don't get to see each other quite as much as we used to talk to each other. But when we do get back together, it's just that kind of instant, um, just take off right where we left off with, um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, it's pretty special and really cool and unique how that just without, you know, saying anything just goes down. Yeah. Yeah. What about you too? Um, well, what comes to mind as the, the, uh, the youngest brother, um, and this sort of just pertains to the siblings in, in general, but, um, I think even more so to a family of just brothers is how, um, how much the birth order, uh, can affect a person's identity and how they, um, just how just affect them their lives uh, as the youngest I really have embraced it throughout my life and embraced all the support and role modeling and advice that you guys have given and um it just really has allowed me to grow as a person not just um emulating you guys but um learning more about myself and and defining myself through um growing up as the youngest brother thanks for being on i appreciate you both yeah thanks for having us all right boys yeah thanks for having us one two three and Welcome to What I Did Not Learn in Sunday School, the segment where we explore the sometimes oppressive, sometimes inspiring, oftentimes complex roots of our faith. And in today's segment, what I didn't learn in Sunday school is that Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the apostles were not white. Paul Kival explains in his book, Living in the Shadow of the Cross, that most of the early Christians were Arabic hailing from Western Asia or Northern Africa. Around the 7th and 8th centuries, the Eastern Church weakened and power was consolidated in Western European Rome. Soon after, church leadership became white and perceptions and art of God, Jesus, Mary, and the disciples were whitewashed. Divine figures increasingly were portrayed with a white and male idealized image. One look at Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel can show which skin tones were emphasized. As Christianity spread to the Americas, Western Europeans brought with them the idolized image of a white male deity. Christianity played a central role in the slave trade. Geivel says, blessing it every step of the way, many slave ships had names such as Christ the Redeemer and Good Ship Jesus. Frederick Douglass was quoted as saying, the slave prison and the church stand near each other. The rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealer in the bodies and souls of people gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit. In return, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Despite this history of oppression, The Black Catholic Church maintains a strong presence in the United States, as Mary Curtis says in an article from this past October in American Magazine. 
The truth is, the Catholic Church in the United States is being transformed by its black and brown parishioners, whose numbers and voices are rising. They are keeping the church alive, end quote. Despite the strength of the black church, the overall Catholic response to current issues of race, such as Black Lives Matter, has been lacking. At the National Black Catholic Congress, held in Orlando in July of 2017, Black Catholics from across the country gave voice to their experience in the church. Stacy Allen, a facilitator of the Congress, who is also an attorney and active volunteer at her local parish, expressed frustration with the lack of support from the church for the Black Lives Matter movement. She says, quote, It's been painful that a faith that I love so much and I dedicate quite a lot of time to feels like it hasn't seen my own humanity, hasn't seen my own pain. One of the primary teachings of the church is the value of human life and human dignity. And if Black Lives Matter is not a matter of human dignity, something is wrong. Auxiliary Bishop Ferdinand Sherry III of New Orleans provided an apology. And he said, quote, To the black youth, I apologize to you as a leader of the church because I feel we have abandoned you in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I apologize. Other black Catholics offer perspective on healing the wounds of our white supremacist society. Father Brian Massingale, professor of theology at Fordham University, speaks of the racist systems in our American society as creating a soul sickness. Massingale holds the belief that improving public policy can improve lives and says transformation must occur at the spiritual level. Spiritual practices such as lamentation, he says, quote, give you the passion to continue to work for a justice that will take you into places you can't even imagine. Massingale encourages the interior spiritual work necessary to transform society. Ultimately, my friends, what I did not learn in Sunday school is that the Catholic Church has a paradoxical and complex history in relationship to empire and racism. Quite frankly, our church has upheld both oppressive institutions as well as movements for radical liberation. We must reflect on ourselves and ask, while people of color remain targets of divisive and violent oppression, where are we, especially those of us who are white, as Catholics standing? I begin by inviting the Spirit to come upon me and relish in the powerful embrace of our loving Creator. I give thanks to God for all of our brothers, those in our life who show care for us and who are in need of us. I ask the Creator for the grace to see all brothers through their eyes, to call to mind the invisible struggles of our brothers and our brothers kept invisible by fear, bias, 
and a country unable to properly embrace their vulnerability. I ask myself, as of late, what have I done for him, for them? When have I prayed for them? Thought of them. Cried for them and for their families. Torn apart by walls, by bars, by cells and concrete. When have I embraced him? Held him and remembered his isolation. Then I ask myself, what have I done to him? When have I watched idly as he is put in handcuffs, held against his will, forced into labor, and abused at the hands of my nation? I offer up to the Creator all of the voices of brothers who resist who believe in abolition and liberation and grace and vulnerability and joy. I hold the songs and hearts of those held behind bars and under the weight of the undue burden of my country's sins. I open myself to all the times I have fallen short been swept up by blindness to the fear and sadness felt by our brothers. I confess how sorry I am for my ignorance, my own fear, my complacency, my own unknowing support of a system that seeks to divide us from our brothers. then I ask for forgiveness and the grace to struggle with those committed to liberation, renewal, resurrection, and redemption for those perpetuating and suffering under our criminal justice system. I end in thanksgiving for this time of reflection and offer a prayer for our brothers, for the warming of hearts and the knowledge that they are not alone. My brother, I stand with you. This has been Know Where We Stand podcast. Our director of research is Karen Gargamelli-McCrate. And our producer is Sean Gargamelli-McCrate. Our logo was provided by CZ Design. And moral support provided by Ben Peterson and Dominic the Dog. My name is Teresa Carino. And my name is Jimmy Hannigan. Until next time, know where you stand and stand there. there.